It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right. Today is June the 16th in 2023, and my guest is Neil Chilson. Neil is a lawyer and computer scientist, a rare combination. He's the former chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and a current senior research fellow for technology and innovation at the Center for Growth and Opportunity, and the author of the book, Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. Today, we'll finally have a conversation with a former regulator, something <laughs> that I've been promising to do in the beginning of the podcast but it proved hard to find someone willing to talk to me. <laughs> so great to have you on today, Neil. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. Great. Today, we'll talk about how to regulate or not to regulate emerging technologies and pressing today with things like artificial intelligence. We're going to go through Neil's work and through his book in the process and get his insights on creating emergent order. So order without sort of a one conscious designer or centralized leadership. To start out with, you're a lawyer and computer scientist. How did that come about? I got interested in computers when I was a kid. I think like many people do, I uh, came across, I think my dad got me a Coleco Atom at some point, which had tape drive, uh, but very quickly found one of my favorite things to do with them was to try to build complicated things that were uh, often in graphics. And I got really interested into chaos theory. And at that time, that's what it was called, complexity. They didn't really call it complexity science back then. There's a great book by James Glick called Chaos. Got really interested in that. And that was my path into computer science. But when I was in grad school, I helped TA a class on uh, computing ethics. And a lot of the issues there were uh, legal ones, obviously. Uh, at that time in particular, a lot of it was around patent policy and copyright. Some of your listeners may remember that there was uh, something called Gray Tuesday, where people posted online. It was in the era of file sharing, where people posted online this uh, DJ Danger Mouse's album that was a blend of uh, the Beatles' uh, white album and Jay-Z's black album, without permission from either of those artists. I did that protest and I got a cease and desist letter. And I was re just really interested in all these issues. I didn't really have a political background or a legal background, but all the people who were doing cool work in that space were lawyers. So I thought maybe I should go to law school. At that point, there wasn't really a path. At least there wasn't a clear path to doing policy related work 
as a graduate in computer science, a PhD or a teacher. I, I think that path is now much more common. But at that time, there weren't really programs for that. So I, so I went to law school and went from getting paid to go to school to paying quite a lot to go to school. So there was a big difference there. So that was my path to law school. And I brought that engineering background, but also that real interest in complex systems and the idea that it can be very hard to design things when the system is deeply complex in a way that's predictable to my thinking in the legal space. And that just, that just naturally edged me towards, I guess what you would call a more libertarian philosophy. I kind of back-ended my way into that just from coming from that background. So uh, without really a, a political not much of a, a, a formal political education of any kind. So that was my path uh, into the into that world and into policymaking. Yeah. It's, does it make you stand out as a lawyer with that background? Or is there, you must think about the world in very different ways than most lawyers do, right? It's very interesting. I mean, there are plenty of, well, plenty of, there are, there are many people who have like a, a technical background and a law background, but most of those people go into things like patent practice and not so much in the policy world, but in a place where they're applying that deep technical knowledge in order to serve their clients better. And I did a little bit of that. You know, I spent some time in the telecom world, eight years in private practice there, and I got the chance to dig into, you know, how does the internet work when we're talking about net neutrality and and what might be the practical impacts of that. And so I, I did get to to cross that. And it is, it is unusual. Um, I think it's particularly unusual, however, to come into the policy space with an engineering background, but to sort of deeply recognize the difference between designing a circuit or a program and designing a law. I've often said that often the most prescriptive people who end up in the tech policy space are people with engineering backgrounds because they don't make that distinction very clearly in their own mind. Uh, they think that engineering society is essentially the same as engineering a machine. And that metaphor does not work very well, it turns out, in the real world. I do think that that is somewhat unusual for me to come into this space with, that, with those combos of skills, but also uh, really recognizing the the complexity of legal and societal change. Yeah. What you said in your website struck out to me, it's sort of striking the same chord. Uh, administrative law often looks like a series of patches, each applied to correct the unintended consequences of the previous patch, and each applied with full confidence that this time the system was tamed and controlled. It all looked like using a deterministic Newtonian mindset to govern a nonlinear system, a real mismatch. So I was surprised to hear, but it just in a way it doesn't surprise me that that's kind of the mentality of, of people that make policy or make the law. They kind of expect it turns out like they want it to. And one of the learning from Cow's theory is that there's all these unintended consequences, right? Yeah, and I think um, in particular... There's lots of different types. I, I think people tend to blend together what law is. And I think there's lots of different types of law. 
In particular, the regulatory type of law that I was talking about there, the type of law that Hayek would call regulation, not law, he would call it legislation, not law, can be very prescriptive. And it, it sort of sets out the, the bounds of what the subjects of that law can do. And there in particular, I think the, the challenges are much more difficult. The knowledge problem becomes much bigger. Whereas if you have something like tort law, where it's aimed at resolving effects and it requires the application of judgment by the judge in each instance, that's much more flexible. Um, it's ex post. And so the judge can you know, apply good decision-making based on precedent to a new situation that has never been anticipated before uh, in a way that's very difficult to do uh, ex ante before in the way that regulators often try to do in some of these regulatory agencies. And so that, that comparative analysis of different types of law, I think, kind of gets lost when we talk about, oh, we have a societal problem, we need a solution, we need a law, and people don't really think about the different modes that you might be able to use law and when one, when one mode might be appropriate and when one mode might be less appropriate. So part of, part of the, I consider it my work, and I think what I tried to capture in the book was that we should at least think about the different types of law when we're trying to especially address fast-moving spaces like technology, in, in particular AI is the most relevant example right now. Yeah, regular listeners to the podcast might be familiar with episode seven with Tom W. Bell, where he talked about common law versus statutory law and yeah. common law as a more polycentric, more flexible way. Since you already mentioned it, can you talk about Hayek's essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society? I'm asking because I read that essay, I'm pretty sure, 10 times by now, and I found it deeply fascinating and intriguing. It's quite short. Can you talk a bit about that essay? When did you read it? At what point in your career and what impact did it have on your thinking and your work? So Hayek, generally a very potent thinker and has had a huge impact on how I think about the world. And I think what people don't appreciate uh, about him is though he was an economist, he helped create some of the early parts of computer science as well by how he talked about information. It's been quite a while actually since I've read the full text of uh, the use of knowledge in society. I should get back to it soon. Um, uh, it's a good reminder to do that. But big picture, the knowledge problem that Hayek is talking about and which he mentions in, which he highlights in that essay is the idea that centralized decision makers face a challenge in acquiring knowledge that's relevant to the decisions they're trying to make for other people. And those challenges come from a bunch of different uh, angles. One of them is that a lot of knowledge is tacit in that you can inquire, you know, you can ask somebody how to ride a bicycle and they can tell you what the mechanical motions are, but that doesn't really capture how to ride a bicycle. It's something you have to learn by doing. And there is a lot of knowledge that I think we don't acknowledge is that type of knowledge, even in things that are much less mechanical. Most writers will tell you sort of what their routine is for writing, for example. But if you try to like push them and how they come up with ideas, they don't really know exactly. They can't really explain it. They just know they do it. 
And I think there's a lot of things. I think every person can think there's lots of things that we do that it would be hard to actually explain in full enough detail how you do that. So that's one type of knowledge that's very difficult to get. Another type of knowledge that's difficult to get, knowledge is often very dispersed, especially when you're trying to deal with society-wide problems. Um, people in their situations are unique and they often have many different, often conflicting goals, sometimes even within themselves. And so for a, a, a regulator who is trying to strike the best balance for everybody, um, getting that in any way that can be summarized is basically impossible. And those are two of the biggest challenges uh, I think that Hayek points out. So the types of systems that can best balance and meet those demands for different people tend to be ones where decision-making happens at a local level and the effects can be communicated through some types of emergent systems. Markets are the most common one. The price system is another one uh, where those decisions can be communicated to each other, but in a way that allows the freedom for people to act to meet their own needs, which cannot really be averaged across an entire uh, system. And so Hayek was the first person to really point out this in a formal way and, and to really dig into what does that mean about how we might try to make decisions across an entire society. Yeah. I, I feel like the knowledge of that essay stands between people and really grasping with the problems of like the regulatory state or of economics in general, realizing or noticing, and that part is just really unintuitive for people. Also that value is subjective. So a price or thing aren't necessarily have the same value for each different person, right? So when you buy like a drug or something like that and you have like a price control for it because we want to have enough of it or something like that, that doesn't do much because it might be delivered in different ways by different doctors at different times. People are at a different age and they have different kind of propensities for like fear. Right. So some people might want to be super preventative about their health and urgent, others much less. So the value function of like the product is just super, super subjective. And I only became to fully like realize or appreciate that when I was an entrepreneur myself in the marketplace. Yeah. And I'm like on the front line and trying to sell a product to someone else and trying to figure out what the right price is. It's subjective. Right. What I have to figure out is the perception of value from my client, right? I can't give this thing an objective price, right? And sort of that figuring out what is the value for the client versus what you can deliver at what price points, that interplay of, of markets is really a powerful alchemy. And it's hard to imagine how it could work differently. Or you're realizing once you end up entrepreneur or once you've understood the depth of Hayek's essay, how much sort of with price controls or how much you can mess up with the wrong regulations once you steer people or the markets in, in the wrong direction or even things that you didn't notice were like a cost, right? The cost of doing business, the administrative burden and things like that. The other thing that's really interesting is not only is value subjective, but often it's we don't actually know what our preferences are until we're faced with a decision. And, and in that way, markets are they generate knowledge. They don't just convey knowledge. Prices don't just convey knowledge. They generate knowledge by 
capturing millions and millions of different decisions that are made in a very specific context. And this is one thing that actually I've seen, there's been a bunch of discussion about AI in this space that have missed this point with people thinking that, well, now that we can get data, maybe we can help help solve this knowledge problem because we have these big machines, we have these big algorithms that can crunch a lot of data and come up with something that's sensible out of that. But that misses the fact that the it's not just the data, it's the production of the data that's essential. Even if you could collect all the current data of prices and pump, punch that into a, a big algorithm, you wouldn't be able to substitute for the generation of the net of data in the next step. And that's the key. That's the key thing that I think people who think AI means we can do central planning. Uh, th that's what they're really missing. Yeah. We get back to AI in later parts of the conversation. In the meantime, what I'd be interested in is, so you worked on the policy and on the regulatory side. Can you maybe pick kind of the top three regulatory issues that you worked on? and talk us a bit through those, sure. how, what's kind of the background of these proposals and what was kind of the end result of it and what did you learn from that? Sure. So the a little bit of background about the Federal Trade Commission. The Federal Trade Commission is primarily a law enforcement agency. It has a very general statute. It has two mandates. It has promote competition and protect consumers. Very general mandates. Its statute is very non-prescriptive. It says the job is to, uh, to prevent unfair methods of competition and to prevent unfair or deceptive acts or practices. And there isn't a lot of detail beyond that. It's one of the oldest uh, independent agencies in the U.S. It's been around about 100 years. And so a lot of what that means has been fleshed out over time in the courts. And in some ways, the FTC is much more common law than say, something like the Federal Communications Commission, which sits down and writes lots of rules for how to regulate AM radio or FM radio or cable TV. The FTC historically has not done a lot of rulemaking. And so in that way, it is less regulatory and more of a, like I said, an enforcement agency. That has added a lot of flexibility. So I'll, I'll give you a, a couple examples. Um, The FTC is the primary body that enforces U.S. federal privacy law. Uh, there isn't really U.S. federal privacy law, I should say. There are in certain sectors like healthcare and a few others, video rental, weirdly. Yeah. But there isn't the general privacy law in the U.S., that applies to commercial uses of data. And so what the FTC has done has looked at how its unfair and deceptive acts and practices authority applies in the space of privacy. The main way that it's done that is by saying, do companies tell people, tell users the truth about how they're using their data? And so we'll look at things like privacy policies and say, does this match up to what the companies are doing? And if not, the FTC can bring a case. Uh, it's an enforcement case, but no, it's not prescriptive about what those privacy practices should be. It's just saying that the companies have to tell the truth about what they're doing. Its unfairness authority is slightly different. There, the commission looks at 
for example, is was there an act or practice that harmed consumers that they couldn't avoid and which wasn't outweighed by benefits to consumers and competition? Again, very broad standard in application. What that means is this is how the FTC has brought a lot of its data security cases where it says the practice that you were doing, let's say, not keeping passwords at, at rest in encrypted format, right? So just having plain text files around is like a, a very risky thing for a company to do. Consumers wouldn't know that's happening. They can't really avoid it. And there aren't a huge amount of benefits to doing such things. And so the commission might, if there's a data breach, bring an action against a, a company there. So so in, in many ways, my, my role was less regulatory and it was much more looking at cases and advising my boss, who was a commissioner at the, the FTC, on how she should think about voting yes or no on this complaint and what she might write about it in any public statement. And, and so I got to test over and over this type of applying a generalized principle to a specific set of facts. And then often what the FTC would do would be boil down a bunch of those cases into guidance that was not mandatory, uh, but it suggested how the FTC was thinking about these types of issues. It's a type of what many people have called soft law, um, where there isn't a mandate here, but it's a sort of overall guidance to the community about what might be best practices, et cetera. The thing that's really interesting about this approach, I know I've I've dove deep into the privacy one. That's probably the the example that's the the most relevant here. The FTC does lots of other things, advertising, warranty, you know, making sure people are not lying about their warranties, fraud, force and abuse. There's lots of things uh, in there. Uh, but the thing that's the most interesting to me about the FTC's approach is that it has been, they have been sometimes called the federal uh, technology commission in part because of that general flexible mandate case by case approach they've been able to adapt to lots of different types of consumer harm that might be coming up from different types of technology without having a specific expertise or even mandate in that per in that particular technology because what they've been focused on is what is the outcome what is the harm and that type of focus i i i've found to be very useful. And so I, I worry when we try to replace something like that with something that is much more prescriptive, that's much more static, and that is focused not just on the outcomes and how we might remedy bad outcomes, but it's also very focused on the means that we think are the right means for companies or individuals to, to use to reach any outcomes. So that really informed how I, how I think about regulation. You could compare and contrast that with my private practice, which again was with the Federal Communications Commission, which is a very regulatory agency. And so I had a nice compare and contrast between an uh, ex-anti-regulator -re and an ex-post law enforcer. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that as well and sort of having that contrast, but just so to see if I understand that correctly, right? So the FTC by focusing on outcomes, that means that concrete harm's done to someone, right? That's right. And that constitutes yeah. a case versus would be what would be more like a preventative approach. I don't know if GDPR falls under that, but so how I understand it, it's very prescriptive. So 
companies have to do all these things X, Y, and Z. That's right. Yeah. So it doesn't result in any harmful outcome or something like that. So yeah. that's that I understand that correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can to get back to our earlier conversation, you can you can imagine the the difference in the volume of knowledge that you would need to know what are all the practices that a company might use that might go wrong. So let's stop them from doing them up front, rather than saying, Hey, we know what the outcomes are that we want to prevent or that we want to remedy if they do happen. So let's let's prohibit those and then we'll bring cases when such harms occur. Now, there's downsides, obviously. I mean, the, the big downside that people always talk about is that, well, maybe there's not enough clarity there or for the businesses, or they'll say, well, that requires that the harm happens already before you get changes. And both of those are fair criticisms. I will say regulations that, especially in, tech sectors that move fast can quickly go out of date. And so very quickly you get what's called the Procrustean problem. Well, you get two outcomes. Either you just get people who don't know how the, the rules apply to them. And so there's not that much clarity, or you get what I call the Procrustean problem, which means, um, you know, the, the Greek myth is of a guy who had a bed that was one size he would offer visitors. And, and if they were too long for it, he would chop them off. Uh, to fit. And if they were too short for it, he would stretch them out to fit the bed. Um, you can get that effect with regulation too, where the regulator created these rules for a certain version of the technology. And then every technology that comes after that gets slammed into that uh, and possibly chopped up, right? Basically, or prevented from, from continuing to evolve. And even if the outcomes might be better, they chop it and they put it in the regulatory box. Uh, and similarly, I think you know, law enforcement has a precedential effect. And so if a company gets in trouble for X, Y, and Z, it doesn't take that long for the industry to say like, hey, uh, X, Y, and Z uh, could get me in trouble. Uh, now, it's not perfect. There are still bad actors. And that does mean the, the agency needs to stay on top of such things and try to figure out how it can scale its response to bad actors. But uh, it certainly is much more flexible often than the, the regulatory or ex anti writing the rules ahead of time approach. And it certainly yeah. has fewer, less of the knowledge problem. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love for you to now contrast that with your experience with the FCC, you said? Yeah. So the, the FCC is the regulator in the telecom industry. And in contrast to the FTC, started out with a quite dis, uh, prescriptive regulatory approach that includes various titles. So you might have you know, cable in one title of the statute, and you might have satellite in another title, and you might have wireless in another title. Congress wrote, wrote this statute in 1996. Eh, there's an earlier one. That's there's a er, there's a much earlier one, but there's like those categories were gen were generated in '96, and the internet is like basically a footnote in there. What that's meant is that most of the FCC's biggest legal challenges have been around. Well, how do we fit this new stuff into this box that Congress told us is the right box? And especially when you have the boxes basically are all blending together now. You have internet services that cross all of those hardware sources, but compete against each other. So, you know, if it would probably blow your, your listeners' minds to know how different the regulatory regime is for the cable TV channel that you get from Comcast 
compared to the Netflix streaming video that you get. They're wildly different, completely different uh, domains for regulation with the cable TV one being actually much more regulated and the over the top video being much less regulated. And, and no surprise, we get, you know, more innovation in the one that has fewer constraints on it. And so there's lots of side effects like that, that, you know, even well-intentioned at the time up to date regulation that cannot be easily updated because it's not outcomes driven. It's much more focused on the specific means. You get all these, these downstream effects of, you know, chilling innovation or distorting where innovation can be and distorting market investments. In the end, it's not clear that it benefits consumers or even the companies particularly well. It's just the way it is because that's the challenge that the, the regulators are facing at the time. And, and, you know, and the legacy is the statute that they put in place. Yeah. And that must be. And that is frequently very frustrating to many of my listeners who are like in technology. For example, if you're in crypto right now and like with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, they're trying to fit everything in the boxes of like securities laws, right? They were made, in like, the, yeah. they were made in like the 1930s, had a couple of updates since then, but basically are still, you know, people keep talking about this Howey test, like about this orange trade. Now I always like... How is that that with that we are sort of using rules from like orange trade in like the 1930s to apply to modern um, cryptographic technologies or cryptocurrencies? Yeah, that is like it's madness, right? So, what 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 does it say about the political process? Yeah, yeah, and it's um it, it's a great example. It's hard. It's hard to think of a better example of the Procrustean problem than the, the the SEC's current way that it's grappling with uh, cryptocurrencies and and distributed ledger technologies. It's 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 a mess. And and what's interesting is to see the the calls for regulation in that space. You can sort of judge them. You can judge their sophistication, at least from my point of view, on how well they recognize that problem, right? Some of them will be like, well, we just need definitions for these things that are clear um, and put them in the statute or put them in the regulation. And that would help in the near term, right? But you might run into the exact same problem in five or 10 years that you're having with uh, the Howey test and the statutes right now. So to the extent that we can try to focus on what is the ultimate goal of the SEC and what is what are they trying to do for consumers and for investors and write statutes that focus on that and less on the sort of means and the, the nitty gritty uh, picking apart of things, uh, that's helpful. Now, the, the big challenge there, there's, there's a practical challenge, but there's also just a political incentive challenge. Another thing that's became much more clear to me in my time, you know, alternating between the FCC and the FTC was that detailed Regulation is a, a goldmine for protecting your business model, right? <laughs> and against uh, against market competitors, and that's much harder to do when you have a general standard like the FTC, where uh, enforcement is going to come after the fact after you're a, a bad actor. And the way I, I've described this to people before was that, you know, I was an attorney advisor to an FTC commissioner, and I had friends who were attorney in that same position 
at the FCC. And if you compared our calendars, they were radically different. Like at the FCC, their calendars were packed with meetings with industry representatives who were coming in to say like, hey, write this rule this way or my business will go under or write this rule this way because it will be better for the public, by which they mean my bottom line typically. Um, my, my calendar had nobody. We never met with people from industry unless we were suing them basically, right? So, uh, and so they would just keep their heads down and, and uh, they weren't coming in to ask us for favors because we couldn't give them favors, right? And so that, you know, that is a challenge actually at the statutory level too, not just the regulatory level because the people that legislators hear from are not you know, Joe average investor who's like, I just, you know, I want to be able to move money around and I want to be able to, you know, access investment. They're hearing from the businesses that have a lot of money at stake as they should. And as is their right. But the end result of that is often legislation that is focused on, you know, this company's particular business model rather than on what is the, what's the right outcome? How are we going to allow people to meet the goals of what uh, what they're aiming to do, you know, and be free to do so with some basic consumer protections or investor protections. Yeah. And isn't it that sort of the latter, the statutory preventative approach, it can like crowd out the approach um, with the more after the fact outcome based because the SEC is basically a launchpad for someone like a Gary Gensler, someone with political ambitions, wants to Potentially, that's how people in my industry in crypto speculate. Well, uh, be a treasury secretary under yeah. like a democratic government or whatever, right? That someone like the FTC wouldn't allow him to do that, right? So, doesn't it create like the incentive for these kinds of very, let's say, power hungry or ambitious people to capture these kinds of organizations and then figure out ways? You know, they also have the backing of many industry players to basically increase their powers or their mandate. Yeah, I, I think those incentives are, are definitely real. I, I should say that, like all institutions, um, the FTC uh, is vulnerable to misuse by the people who lead it. And there is an effort right now at the FTC to turn it much more into a regulatory agency that's writing lots of rules. So the current chair has started I think 16 rulemakings, which is something that the FTC does not do a lot of. And some of these are quite expansive, including uh, one that would ban all non-competes across the country. Uh, non-competes are a type of like contractual clause between labor and organizations. And um, it, that can be abused, but often are quite useful as well. Uh, and so these are very aggressive moves that look much more in the mode of a regulatory agency than what historically has been the FTC's strength, which is a uh, an enforcement agency. All that's to say, you know, I like the FTC quite a lot, but it is not immune from those same political pressures, uh, and we're seeing that uh, at it being exhibited right now. Yeah, I'd like to. First, talk a bit about your book and about Emergent Order. And your book is Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. How, why did you write the book and how would you summarize it? Having worked in tech policy, when I talk to my friends and family who are not really in the policy space, what's very clear to me is that 
people often feel like the world is getting much more complicated and uh and the instinct is often both at the individual level but also certainly at the policy level is to say like somebody needs to be in charge of this we need somebody who's in control because it feels like things are out of control and it seems like sometimes people it, it can be hard to recognize the benefits of complexity and it's particularly hard for people to realize that putting someone in charge of a, a space so that they control it would probably reduce the complexity a lot, which might feel psychically better perhaps. Um, but the benefits that we get from things like complex markets and trade are enormous and they have direct impacts on our lives. And I think people don't make that connection often. So what I wanted to do was write a book that sort of bridged that gap between how do we as individuals deal with complexity in our lives? What are some of the tactics that we might use? But also, are there some general themes we can learn from, from complexity theory and uh, how we might manage complexity that apply both in the policy space and, and to how you, know, you and I deal with complexity as individuals? And so with that in mind, um, you know, I, I wrote the book to try to give a background on what complex systems are, what is complexity. I, tr I wrote a section in the middle that's what are the impl implications for leadership and for public policy? What are some of the, the main things that we can learn? And then the last section is what does this mean for personal growth? How can I, what can I do? How can I as a person think about improving my life that recognizes the that i am a complex system and that i am a part of complex systems i drew on a lot of uh, other experts in all of those areas uh, but i think i found a common thread across them that at least was useful to me in ironing out my thinking and and so that's why i wrote the book to help guide people to help people understand that it's okay it's okay if nobody's in control of something. That doesn't mean it's going to be disorderly or chaotic. Uh, and that often grasping for control can be very counterproductive to what you're trying to achieve, both in the policy space and in your own personal life. Yeah, I wonder how that applies within organizations, right? Somebody can be temporarily in control of something, but then do they retain that kind of positional power and kind of what's demanded after? and kind of what's their planning horizon, right? So I'm sure you're familiar with someone like Ronald Coase, right? In yep. theory of the firm. Well, who basically is saying, well, there is a rational limit to centralization, right? Because as organizations get larger, it becomes just much harder to get all the information just with the Hayekian knowledge problem. But also you need sometimes a certain amount of centralization yeah. to be able to plan certain things or certain enterprises. So there is something to be said about someone having control over something like that. It's, what's relevant is like the process, how we select the people who do that and kind of the time period and the depth and breadth of the mandate of, of what they do, right? Yeah. And and. It's really interesting. I, I talk a little bit about Coase and the, you know, the theory of the firm in the book. Uh, I'd like to dive into that more actually in the future about how that, that plays with some of these ideas about emergent order. 
maybe it's just semantic games, but like when you when you talk about control, it's actually fascinating. Uh, so many of the great leadership books that I've read recently, I mean, it's hard to imagine an organization that is more about control than the military. But uh, when you read something like Team of Teams, which I highly recommend that book, you understand how quickly control is really more, it really is even in a place like that where you can get court-martialed for not obeying, it is still very much the job of leaders to persuade and to lead by example rather than to dictate. The military is a great example of the change in technology and how that can affect what looks like control. Think of Civil War era battles. If you told your lieutenant, hey, like, here's your objective, go achieve it. There wasn't even the technical feasibility of you micromanaging that process, right? You wouldn't even know what was happening until days later when they came back from the raid uh, or whatever. Whereas modern technology made it quite feasible that you, you send your team in and they can report back constantly and they can check in constantly. And I think there was, an, uh, McChrystal talked about the early temptation uh, in the Iraq war and it slowed things down because he was basically rubber stamping stuff that uh, he didn't really have any local knowledge on, but he was still putting himself in the, in the loop, the decision-making loop. And he realized quickly that just because it was possible for him to hear some information, that didn't mean he was creating value. And so delegating the responsibility, setting the general goals of a mission, and then letting the execution, delegating the execution to the people who can apply the local knowledge that they're going to come across in that situation. Whereas Coase talks about the, the, the firm as a sort of non-market entity, that there's all types of complex emergent phenomena that are happening within firms it's very fractal in that way whereas there's a boundary within the there's a boundary from the firm to the market there's lots of boundaries within the firm as well where there's all sorts of complex things happening between them that are not command and control uh, that are much more dynamic uh, all sorts of norms based things and uh, persuasion rather than command and control so I think Costa's insight is is still 100% valid, but we should apply it maybe inside of what we might think of as a firm as well, that there's lots of different like subsections within it, uh, even right down to the individual level and how we communicate information between ourselves uh, and other other parts of the organizations we work in. Yeah, that was also exactly my quibble with it. And I discussed this with Brian Robertson, who was the inventor of Holacracy. Yep. where we talked about exactly that, how organizations themselves can become more fluid and react more to feedback loops. I also have the same experience in the military, right? So it's often less sort of the positional authority. But so if you're like a lieutenant or something like that, you still need to earn the respect of the troops, yep. right? Because they're very smart. They know how the rules work and how they apply in the local context. So if you don't have their buy-in, they might still follow your orders or your rules, but you still won't be able to get anything done. Right. right. Yeah. There's a <laughs> malicious compliance is a thing. You follow the rules and uh, <laughs> at such a level of detail that that um, you're undermining the actual goal. Yeah. yeah. So I think as a leader in an organization, in a business, and also in the military, you do get the feedback loop from reality, right? So you're in combat or you're in a peace mission 
or in business, you have competitors, you need to win buyers and customers. This is when you learn these lessons. But it seems to me that regulatory agencies don't have these feedback loops, right? Or to what degree do they exist, right? You know, it's easy to write a rule on paper and you don't get any of the upside of when it's actually helping businesses evolve or thrive, right? You only see the downside of when somebody is painting me in a bad light in the media or something like that, right? Yeah, the feedback loops are, uh, are, are certainly very different in a regulatory uh, agency. Their incentives are often to not rock the boat too much, to not get called up on Capitol Hill, to keep their job. None of those things are necessarily based on how well they are achieving the mission of the organization. Uh, and certainly the feedback loops are much slower, even if they were in that direction, than say a week, a quarterly or even a weekly or maybe even daily like readout of how <laughs> whether people are buying your product. And 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 those types of feedback loops, because they're much faster, are much more actionable. Whereas at the regulatory level, the feedback loops, I mean, they could be years or decades long, frankly, when you see trends from Congress, for example, or new legislation that comes in, it can take that, that long for a feedback loop to solve, uh, to say like, to signal to an agency, Hey, you guys aren't doing your job well. And that might be okay in very static industries. It's probably not even okay there. And, and probably some of the reason that they are static industries is because that feedback loop is so long, but it's certainly a giant mismatch for industries that move uh, very quickly. You talk in a book, one virtue that you mentioned is humility, right? When you're in a position of leadership. Can you talk a bit about that? So I, I stole this from my former uh, boss at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, Maureen Allhausen, who talked about approaching a position of leadership within uh, government with regulatory humility, which for many of the reasons that we've already discussed, especially the knowledge problem, just admits what is not possible uh, or the potential limits on what you do. That doesn't mean that regulators, like like any of us, uh, we're not free to do nothing, right? Like we had to do something. We had to pick something to do. Uh, but acknowledging that what we do will not be perfect, and this gets back to the quote that you said before, and that we should try to incorporate feedback over time and that it's about a process, not just a single decision uh, and you put it out in the world and then you dust your hands and you're done with it. I think all of those are implications of uh, a mindset that says regulation is going to be imperfect and that we should think about how can we enable feedback loops that can help us improve it and how can we bring to regulation an attitude that says, I cannot gather all the necessary knowledge to make this decision for everybody out there. As I pointed out, it at the FCC, it often felt like, you know, like you said, that was a series of patches, which are fine, right? Software patches are great. Regulatory patches, you know, you should try to fix problems. It it was just the supreme confidence that at this point we have now solved the problem and there will not be future problems that in the arguments up to passing some new change uh, to regulation that always struck me as silly because you know five years ago they were saying the exact same thing about the exact same law 
And I guess I can understand in some ways it was a, a way to tout the, uh, get the, ensure the passage of whatever they're trying to pass. Cause you don't want to like maybe point out that, Hey, this might be out of date, uh, you know, in two years, but at the same time, it's, it was also, it also struck me as somewhat disingenuous to, to con- constantly claim that we've solved the problem this time. What do you think about the idea of privatizing the regulatory function? <laughs> and just to illustrate what I mean by that. So in Prosper, for example, the idea is that insurers are the regulators because they have the upside from when you succeed as a business, right? So because then you're going to continue bringing revenue and be a customer, but they also want to regulate against the downside, right? They don't want you to mess up so they don't have to pay. Right. Yeah, I mean, I th- that's an ingen- ingenious way to get at what I think many people have tried to do in the public sector, which is having a a true cost benefit analysis uh, and a true a true risk analysis. Now, all of these things face problems in the abstract just because of the knowledge problem, right? You're not going to be able to predict, but an insurer has a much stronger incentive because they have money on the line to figure out how to structure those feedback loops so they can cabin in the risk. Regulators just don't have that. You can mandate that they do cost-benefit analysis. And in fact, most of the, at least the executive branch agencies, all are required by executive order to do cost-benefit analysis. It doesn't really change outcomes, frankly. They, they do them. They're cursory often. And you can, you can get them to say what you want to support your proposal. And nobody's going to come slap your hand and be like, no, that's not. You didn't do your cost-benefit analysis right. The only incentive there is to comply with the checkbox that they do one. It's not that it be accurate and it's not going to cost them money if it isn't done right. So you could imagine private sector approaches that would not be, would have the same problem, right? Uh, it's all about how you design incentives and how you try to structure incentives. But the main advantage in the private sector is that you could try lots of different ways and in the public sector, you do not have the flexibility to try lots of different ways and you and to set incentives in lots of different ways and to let let bad ones fail. Uh, it's very hard, very hard to get rid of a program in the, especially the federal government, uh, no matter how much it's failing. In fact, failure is often a reason to pour more resources into it. Exactly. That's something that I often point out to people, right? So because people usually tell me, oh, what about the rating agencies in the financial crisis? Doesn't that show that it doesn't work? They have the incentive to give the customer what they want. To which my reply is always, well, but it's easier to fix it in that kind of environment, right? Because right. their reputation is now damaged. So you can come up with a better solution that right. is preventing sort of your next customers from having the exact kind of experience. But yeah. in the public sector, if you have like a bad rule or a bad regulation, it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to get rid of it or fix it. Right. right. So, and to your point, you said it's like it's often the bad ones that get more funding or stay around, right? Because they're often artificially inflating or causing a problem that wasn't there before, right? Well, and the, the worst effect is the ones that distort the market. So you just don't get innovation in a sector and nobody knows it's missing, right? You just don't know because 
especially this procrustean problem, everybody's trying to build their industry to fit this regulatory box. Uh, they're not thinking about like, what are the other ways to do it uh, to achieve the same problem? Because if they walked in front of a regulator with that, they'd have both the regulator who's saying like, well, this doesn't fit in any of our boxes. It's probably illegal. And then you have the competitors who already fit in the box basically being like, yeah, yeah, that guy's definitely illegal. Please don't let him compete. Those types of uh, Baptist and bootlegger scenarios are very difficult to get out of once you're in them. Which is exactly what this podcast is about, right? Sort of the stranded technologies that we could have if it wasn't for exactly everything that we're discussing today. Let's talk about artificial intelligence. And sure. I'd be curious, so my first question is just burning under my toenails, and that's keeping me awake at night sometimes is, what is Sam Altman up to? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good transition from our previous conversation because software development in the US is extremely permissionless right now. You don't have to ask anybody to drop a compiler on your computer to pump out a bunch of code, even to post that code online so other people can use it. It's a, it's a very permissionless sector. And what we're seeing with the concern around AI is a, a, a pretty, to me, quite concerning trend to say, hey, maybe we should do it differently in the US. Maybe we should turn it into a regulatory sector. And so when I see a proposal like Microsoft's proposal to have licensing for artificial intelligence with an explicit embrace of banking style regulation, I get really worried. That's a drastic change in the US and it's taking a sector, it's taking a sector that has been extremely productive in part because of its permissionless nature and saying, hey, maybe we should stop that. And, you know, what's Sam's role in this? I, I don't know. I think after he testified before Congress most recently and said, maybe we should have a regulator, a specific regulator and have licenses, a lot of people said he's just wanting cronious protections for his business. And I don't know, like I can't read inside his mind. I don't know that that's what he wants. I can say that there have been plenty of times in history where companies just thought that was the right answer, but the ultimate effect was a cronious effect. And that could be happening here. I, you know, I, I have much less sympathy for Microsoft. Big fan of the company, big fan of their products. They definitely know how to play this game uh, and they have been playing it for, for decades. And so I, I think they they are probably very aware of the competitive effects of a licensing regime. And to drive again the, the yeah. message home of why we're worried about this AI regulation, or maybe let's first clarify or steel men the case why there should be regulation, right? Because the argument is, well, there's this existential risk potentially or allegedly of artificial intelligence. So don't we need some kind of a slowdown or regulation to mitigate against that risk? For someone who hasn't been listening to the conversation, or let, let's just, what would be the first principle answer to that argument or that fear? Well, uh, it's a great question. I will say, I think that the calls for regulation come from a couple different sources. I think the existential risk is one that is informing the sort of tone of the debate. 
But when you look at all the proposed regulation, it doesn't seem like it's very well targeted towards that particular issue. The people who are really, really worried about existential risk are willing to do crazy things to stop it, which you can sort of understand if that's the frame of mind that they're coming at, the, you know, the extinction of humankind. Having a licensing regime seems pretty inadequate. So I don't have a great answer to the existential risk. Like what, how do we regulate to stop that? Because I don't think that there are great answers there. I think the better question is what evidence do we have of existential risk being a real threat and how would we prove or disprove that? And then the third would be like, how would we even prove that what we do today is going to help or hinder that? There's one world in which you can look at someone like Sam Altman and say, oh, you're worried about existential risk, but you're continuing to pursue this product. It seems like there's some tension there. There's a lot of arguments about like whether or not that makes sense, but I don't have really good answers for what a regulatory approach to existential risk would be. I think we need to dig in further to whether or not existential risk is a big thing, or even if that's the right frame for us to think about when we're making policy. I mean, what I'd like to point out is, I mean, it's, it's hard to unlike theoretical because we were working in like theoretical territory. It's right. hard to disprove on theoretical ground that it like can't ever be a thing. Right. Of course, there are scenarios that, under which it's possible. Right. And it's just hard to have that debate because it's so theoretical and it's like not after the fact or outcome based, but like trying to be preventative without us having any knowledge of how it would actually turn out in practice. Yeah. And I think, of course, with my way of thinking, it's just much more likely that we like don't end up with that so as we know about emergent order so we're creating the security and safeguards without like having one conscious designer or like one centralized or regulatory agency so to us that seems pretty clear not to most people and then i'm countering like well what do we know about existential risk where do they come from like biological weapons nuclear power and other kind of destructive technology they were almost 80 almost all the times done like for military purposes commanded by governments so why do you want to give governments control over what you see as dangerous technology that seems like the biggest or the bigger existential risk than yeah the alternative it's a great point and often the the mechanisms by which these scenarios are played out is through other technologies that are harmful so a lot of them are the you know the ai can design a super germ or something like that and it's like well the vector of harm there is not the intelligence, right? It's the the virus. And so even there, you're talking about a sort of bank shot towards existential risk. The other thing I think that is underappreciated, and I think this gets back, this is, you know, kind of continues the theme of the whole conversation, is that I think a lot of the people in this space overestimate the value of intelligence. Often they're talking about like, well, if somebody can be as smart as the smartest engineer, then what will stop them? You know, if an AI can be as smart as the smartest engineer, then it will just upscale itself in an infinity. You know, what's really, really smart, much smarter than any smart engineer is and accomplishes amazing things is all of us together across society. Reaching that level of scale with AI is not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of a big emergent system that's coordinated and 
Uh, and the antibodies, to use a metaphor that that's that our human system has against complete control and disruption are quite strong. We've had very smart people with very evil intent who have caused a lot of damage, but not at the existential level. Um, and so the question is, how much is it intelligence that really matters to this threat versus something else? I think that informs the sort of tone of the debate. And you can definitely see that's a, it's a sort of hype cycle around the existential risk of these things. I think the more practical policy debate is not really around those issues. It's about a couple different things, many of which are values that people had prior to you know this big wave of AI and concerns that they had about just software generally. One of the things I talk about is that you know the Federal Trade Commission has done several different reports on the use of information in harmful ways, and one of them was on big data, which is basically. You know, I, I often joke that if you took the FTC big data report and you just like put computers in there, every time it said big data, it would have been, it, it, it all would have still made sense. Um, and I think that's almost true for most of the AI debates that are around these more concrete policy concerns around bias, disinformation, inaccurate uh, information. All of those are concerns that have been around a long time in computing. And so people are sort of bringing that baggage uh, and those policy preferences here to the new conversation around AI and saying, hey, this time we really need to do something about it. And the something that they want to do is, I think, broader than AI, in part because people are using AI to mostly mean, uh, if you heard the Senate hearing, it was, they were basically just saying big computers, uh, Big computers can do things that we worry about. And it's like, yeah, well, yes, it's true. But that that has been true for a long time at this point. And we have found ways to manage that risk uh, and to mitigate some of those harms. Not that it's perfect, but it's not that different from what we're talking about now. Now I'm even more worried than before. <laughs> Sorry. It's like the, you know, the tech sector and especially driven by software eating the world. That's like the one sector where all the hope and all the progress is coming from, right? So Silicon Valley and the culture developed around rapid and permissionless innovation, and it's spreading all over the world. Like that's what I'm working on and bringing it also to other countries like Honduras. That's what we look up to. So now Sam Altman is tapping into this agenda in Washington, D.C. that many people had for a long time, probably having like good intentions. But now they're like, hey, now we can finally regulate software and kind of yeah. put like the one sector where the good things are coming from and are sort of still causing us to have at least somewhat or a little bit of economic growth to also decline. That would be the real, that's a real existential risk. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I totally agree. I, you know, I, I worked on a report with Adam Thier called the coming onslaught of algorithmic fairness regulations. And I think um, I think you should be a little afraid. Uh, and I think everybody in this space should be afraid because at the state level, uh, at the federal level, and even at the international level, the wave of regulation that is aimed at computation 
is enormous. Uh, a lot of it is framed as ways to ensure equity or prevent bias, control misinformation. But at the end of the day, it's going to sweep up a giant chunk of software development and in a way that is, you know, the social media fights on steroids. I do really worry about all of the different proposals that are out there and how do we, how do we reset the, the, um, the conversation to be about like the major benefits that these types of innovations can bring. I mean, when you hear some of the rhetoric, it starts from the premise that the internet essentially is bad, right? That, that something that we didn't get a grip, we didn't control the development of the internet and look how bad things turned out. And part of me looks at that and I'm like, I don't, it does, it seems pretty good actually in many ways. There's so much value creation. Can you imagine going through COVID without having like remote technologies? How much worse would have that have hurt our economy? Um, things like that. And, and the resilience that uh, some of these technologies have brought set aside, you know, the potential uh, entertainment value as well as communication value. I mean, there's the, the the enormous benefits of this technology to the extent that I think if you went to any of those people and said, okay, well, let me take your phone. You can't use it. You can't use the internet for the next year. They would be like, well, that would destroy my ability to do my work. And it's like, well, yes, that's because it's, it has some value. Anyways, um, but if you start with that premise, it's very hard somebody who's starting with that premise is going to very quickly, I think, say like, it, it's no surprise that they're not really just talking about AI. They, they want to go back and sort of reset how we've done software development uh, across, you know, all of the internet. And uh, that worries me a lot. Yeah, we've gotten really far. And on a positive <laughs> note, it seems that with the internet, we did succeed thus far, right? Are there any lessons you can draw from sort of the lack so far of regulatory prescription or enforcement in the internet that could kind of help us sort of carry that permissionlessness forward or into other sectors that you have left in your work? Well, there were some critical pivot points uh, in the development of internet regulation where the White House took a very strong uh, leadership stance. This is under Clinton saying that this is going to be a hands-off space, that, that this is a space in which there is enormous innovation happening, that the benefits to society will be uh, huge, and that we should deal with problems as they come up, but we're not going to, at the outset, try to set some sort of big regulatory framework that would govern the internet. And that ethos had been in the tech sector, but its adoption by, you know, the lead policymaker in the U.S. Um, was, a, was a key moment uh, in the development of the internet and really set the U.S. on a path towards huge innovation uh, and the tech leadership that we have now. And so we're not seeing that this time around. I think those lessons would be well learned, but we're not seeing that that level of leadership. In fact, you know, with the AI, so-called AI Bill of Rights and some and uh, all of government approach to regulating some of this space, it's a much more precautionary approach. And 
uh, I, I won't say there's no good things in there. And I think the this White House is still interested in, you know, the potential growth upside of something like intelligence that you can put on a chip. But it's certainly not the same sort of framework that the Clinton administration adopted around the internet. And I think that means the regulatory battles will be fiercer at the early stages of this in a way that the internet escapes. It dodged that. I'm still optimistic. I should say I'm still optimistic generally because I think this technology, the release of something like chat GPT, where people could get their hands on it and start using it, made it much more concrete. Like what are the, how are the, the, what are the powers of these tools? And I think once some of the panic dies down around like, what will this mean for my life? Uh, and people get integrated with it. I think they'll see how useful these technologies can be. And I think we'll be able to, we'll be able to push back. We'll have good stories. I think, um, before the, the regulatory, uh, wall comes down, but it, you know, we had to do stuff in the meantime, we need to fight this fight. And, uh, I, you know, I, if any of your listeners are interested in how they could help push back against this narrative or uh, give specific examples of how algorithms and AI are benefiting their businesses or their users, I would love to hear them. I'd love to take those stories to regulators and legislators and give them some things to think about. Yeah, it's a good segue and call to action to get in touch with you on some of these issues. Just one concluding thought um, and observing it in the crypto industry where you probably have much more antipathy by the general population against it, sort of considered as a scam and like the FTX scandal and whatever, whatever, but also a more coordinated interest group. So there is tens of millions of crypto users in the United States. So there is very strong opposition. There's even candidates like Robert F. Kennedy who are like very openly speaking out in favor of crypto. I think Texas is doing like a, some kind of bill to protect the right to like hold Bitcoin or something like that. So that's all great. With AI, there might be a reason to be more optimistic because there doesn't seem to be a general antipathy in the population, right? I think sort of the AI extras, doomer crowd is like m more of a Bay Area thing, right? And the general population is like, oh, what? Yeah, my computer isn't, <laughs> or my toaster is not going to attack me or something like that. I wonder to what degree there is a coordinated interest group. And I mean, in a better world, there shouldn't be a need for a coordinated interest group because the interests of consumers are dispersed. Just a, a word on the sort of popular sentiment. I, I would say it really depends on how you ask people the question. Repeatedly throughout human history, I, way before computers, the uh, idea of an intelligence that's not human has almost always been perceived as a threat. That continues today. I mean, the the general concern is there. Uh, if you ask people, they worry about this stuff. Uh, but I think you're right that when it comes to the practical applications, you know, the predictive text on their phone, you know, the ability to do facial recognition in their photo apps, like people don't really worry about this stuff. They they like it. They actually think it's very convenient. Uh, and so I I think you're right there on that general sentiment. As far as like the interest groups, there isn't the same level of, well, in, in part, AI is so general, right? Like the way people, are, like I said, the way people are using it, they're basically just, they just mean like computation with big computers and lots of data. It's a general purpose technology in a way that's even broader than I think crypto. 
uh, or blockchain technologies. The other advantage that it has, but also it means that there isn't a specific interest group trying to protect it, is that, like I said, software is born free. Financial technology is a very mixed bag, uh, right? Like it is software in this case, but the regulatory frameworks for governing something that looks like it or like kind of looks like some of its uses has been there. So I think crypto is not an exactly born free technology and it's running into all of these, you know, it's one of these stranded technologies. I mean, like, uh, and so it's running into a lot of these, these issues. And so in some ways it needs more of a, a concentrated interest group to defend it. Whereas an AI will probably focus on issue specific areas and say like, well, automated driving or rental or employment uh, AIs, like how do we think about those? And and there will be interest groups that are involved in each of those, but as an overarching sort of technology, I don't know that it has a a natural interest yeah. group. Consistent. It also makes sense, right? Yeah. So you have something specific, outcome-based um, law enforcement. What happens if somebody, you know, drives around car kills someone, right? So instead of the preventative approach, I think that was really the the big takeaway from this episode, which I massively appreciated, that we went so deep on sort of a preventative approach versus an outcome-based approach. I think that's super valuable to learn from your first-hand experience to to our listeners hearing about your work and your book. It was really, really beautiful. I could go on for hours and hours. But anyway, um, Neil, what else would you like to draw listeners' attention to when it comes to your work or any initiatives or call to actions and how can they find you to engage with it? Yeah, I do write in at substack at outofcontrol.substack.com. I have an essay up there that's a satirical take on Jonathan Swift style. uh, Hey, if why are we just regulating artificial intelligence? Maybe we should regulate all intelligence. I'm a little worried somebody's going to take that seriously uh, and do it. You can follow me there. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Neil underscore Chilson. Uh, and my book is Getting Out of Control, and you can find it on all the places you buy books. If you'd like to reach out directly to me, DM me on Twitter is great. I uh, would love to hear from you. But you could also reach me via email at Neil, N-E-I-L, at thecgo.org. And it's been great to be here. These are some of my favorite topics, as you can tell, and I'm, I'm very passionate about the the ability to apply emergent order thinking in technology policy. Beautiful. Neil, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.